We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke 14. The title of the message today is Going for Broke. And if you just want to read from the slides, I do like to serve in this area. I think it is good to bring your Bible with you. We are a people of the book. If you're wondering why handing out Bibles are important to do for other cultures, it's because we, we don't actually think we're the big show as Christians. We don't actually think we're the most important thing. We think that God is the most important thing. We think his son Jesus is the most important thing. And God has given us a book that tells his story and tells us who he is. And in the presence of the Holy Spirit, is God talking to people when they read it? And so we hand out Bibles because we actually want people to meet God. We actually want people to hear from Jesus. And so why we get in the Bible on a Sunday morning isn't because I just need somewhere to start before I start making jokes. We want people to hear from God, and the Bible is God's book. And it's not like Harry Potter. It's not like some other novel. When the Word of God is being heard, it is God speaking. And God gives gifts to people to help people kind of understand it, but uh, it is about the Word of God. This is what I believe. I've given my life to this book uh, through crisis. I didn't one day think, oh, I'm so smart, I'm going to think the Bible is God's Word. I literally almost quit going to seminary because I didn't want to have to commit my life to this book, and it broke me, and I decided I'm either going to treat this book like it is God speaking, or I'm going to walk away from everything. And I went for the, I'm treating this book as though it's God speaking, and so here we are. Going for broke. Let's hear from... um, person named Luke who wrote down some stories about Jesus. Now great crowds accompanied him, that's Jesus, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Sorry, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Holy Spirit, I ask for the glory of Jesus for you to do your mission, to make alive the dead, to make sensitive the numb, to make fruitful the hopeful, and to make loved the, the hurt, 
and to make Christian the non-Christian and to do the work of Jesus that he sent you to do. I pray, Lord, that eternal life would come and encounter us this morning. I pray we would not go away unchanged, but your word would accomplish its mission. And I pray, Lord, that the purpose that Jesus spoke these words in his day would come through the millennia to us today and do good work for us as well. In Steinbeck, in Manitoba, in Canada, in our day and age, in this world, for your glory, please the Father. And all God's people said, Amen. So, here's where we're going. You can read ahead if you want to. But one of the things I just want to say today is um, read about Jesus. Young people, read about Jesus. Read Matthew, read Mark, read Luke, read John. These books are named after the people that we, as far as we know, wrote them. But they're all about Jesus. Uh, Read about him for yourself. Don't be a second-hand Christian. Don't be a second-hand gospel person. Find out about Jesus. Um, If you ever wanted to be the most important person to ever live, it's about 2,000 years too late. (laughs) Jesus is the most important person who's ever lived. Uh, He's the most important person in human history. Everything really is a response to him for the last 2,000 years. The biggest religions of the world all do something with him, one way or another. And... uh, You should know for yourself. If you never read about Jesus and kind of are familiar and and know, you're kind of missing out on just part of the biggest part of human history. Uh, You're kind of ignorant. And I'm not saying that as an insult. But if you don't know about Jesus when you could, you're choosing to not know about the most important thing in the world. And I'm not even saying that as a believer, as a Christian. Just like looking at human history, this man's life changed everything for everybody forever. And how people have been responding to him for the last 2,000 years has controlled human history for the last 2,000 years, more or less. So one of the ways I'm reading the Gospels, and I didn't make this up, somebody else suggested this, and I'm thinking about Jesus reading these stories, is I'm wanting to read the stories of Jesus and ask the question, what was Jesus seeing that he responded by doing what he did? Okay, because Jesus wasn't a robot. He didn't just walk around and kind of there were people were trying to invent these like doctor programs a while back. Have you ever heard of these things like Google Doctor? You're like, what is your sickness? I'm bleeding profusely from my chest. I've been shot. Have you taken a COVID-19 test? You know, this is where it's just like a ro- robotic response to everything, right? Yes, I did, because I knew you were going to ask. It's negative. Okay, have you taken a second one to confirm? You know, it's just like this programmed response. Jesus was not a robot. By faith, I believe that he is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the co-creator of the world, and the only true God. 
But he also was truly man who was born of a virgin and passed through (laughs) the birth canal and breastfed and ate food and was a child and a toddler and a teenager. He was a teenager. He was a young adult. He figured it all out and he was in life and he was such a human human that people had a hard time believing he was more than that for most of his ministry. Did you notice that? We struggle as you know, living 2,000 years later, we worship him as God and we struggle with his humanness. In Jesus' life, they just took him as a person. And they, were, they struggled and were offended with his more than humanness. But I'm reading the stories and I'm not treating him as a person and I'm treating him as not a robot and I'm trying to get beyond just the Sunday school stories and I'm asking, what did Jesus see that he responded to the situation this way. And a couple assumptions I have are, number one, that he... That he the first one is this. I, I do believe that in every situation, Jesus is responding with what he thought was the most loving thing to do in the moment. Okay, Jesus isn't like us. He, he didn't get, like, triggered... When he got hungry, he got like more powerful against Satan. When you and I miss a meal and we're just kind of like, I will kill for a burrito right now. You know, we get hungry and tired and we, the fruit of the Spirit is gone. If we miss our coffee, we don't even hit the loved one, let alone all 11 ones. You know what I mean? This is why church is getting better. Everyone's got their fix. Everyone's got their caffeine levels high. The jitters are maybe, you know, jitters from caffeine, but not jitters from the not caffeine. So I'm assuming the best motives for Jesus here, and I'm assuming that he saw something in the crowds that he thought what they really needed to hear in love was, if you don't hate your family, you can't follow me. Anybody messed up yet? What did the most holy and loving and kind man have to see in the crowds that his response to them was, if you don't hate your mother and your father and your wife and your children and your brothers and your sisters, and yes, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. Okay. If you just spent the rest of the day trying to figure out that out for yourself, it would you, you're already somewhere. Because ultimately, you've got to answer that own question. I can talk for the next half an hour, 45 minutes, seven hours without crying. You know what I mean? Like basketball, schmasketball. We need to be able to hit seven-hour sermons without crying, right? I was joking about numbering all the chairs in here earlier today so that you could hit the, like, uh, skip the dishes, Uber Eats, and you'd be like, I'm in chair G72 at Calvary Chapel. It's been three hours. Maybe you could just sneak it in. He talked about burritos at 11.05, and I just can't stop thinking about it. But do you understand what I'm talking about? Like, this actually happened. 
And someone that people thought was good enough to follow in crowds turned to them and said, do you hate enough yet to really follow me where I'm going? Yo, that's messed up, as some people south of the border might say. And it's really funny because didn't it seem like most of the time Jesus' big struggle was actually trying to get people to love each other? So for me, I'm just, I'm wanting, I'm wanting the real Jesus. And by the real Jesus, I don't mean some Jesus in my brain apart from how God has talked about Jesus in Scripture. I want to re- meet the man who is the same person who's in the Bible. So this does lead me to my second question. Is Jesus a jerk? Because if I got up here and said, okay, young people still living at home, do you really hate your mom and dad enough yet? Mom and dad would be ticked. Wouldn't you be? You'd be like, I've been working on this thing for 20 years. You have this sermon and you wrecked everything in five minutes. Wouldn't you think I was a jerk? Aren't the, aren't the, people you, you, the worst people the haters nowadays? Aren't the people you're allowed to hate the haters nowadays? You know what I mean? You're a hater! Hate them! Hate the haters! What? It doesn't make any... Isn't that like a self-nullifying philosophy? Ah, Making sense has not mattered for 20 years, and it's really getting under my nerves. but. But is Jesus a jerk for doing this? I don't think so, and this is why. This whole event that we're talking about, this turning to the crowds and confronting them with something, and I think we'll get to the something, Lord willing, happens in between two events in the Bible, and I won't read it just for sake of time, but this whole turning to the crowds thing comes right after Jesus has been at a banquet. So I call this the between two banquets. He's at a banquet and somebody says, oh man, it's going to be so blessed when we're eating at the banquet in heaven. God's going to throw this big party at the end of time and how awesome it's going to be to be at that party. It's a potluck, except God's the only one who brought anything, and he brought everything. And they have, Jesus has this confrontation with them because he starts telling this story about this great king who's throwing the biggest feast of all time, and he sends out his men to the party, come to this book, and he's on Instagram, and he sent out a TikTok dance, come to the party, come to the party, come to the party, come to the party. And the response is, most people don't want to come. I'm too busy with this. I'm too busy with this. I'm trying to get married. I've got, just bought a cow, which isn't an excuse we would typically use. But maybe it's like, there was a deal on at Earl's, and I just got like 700 pounds of beef for a buck 99 a pound, and I got to go pick it up because the, the electricity just ran out there, and it's all starting to defrost. And so I got to hand bomb all these steaks into the back of my pickup truck, and I can't come. Excuses, excuses, excuses. 
And the king is, is frustrated with people making excuses instead of coming to his party, so he sends out the messengers again, and he just says, forget those people I invited, just go out and bring in anybody, because my party needs to be full. So there's that on the one hand. Well, in the next chapter, we have these three stories about like the joy of God and salvation, and I think we touched on this fairly recently, maybe even last Sunday. We have the story of the lost coin, and we have the story of the lost sheep, and we have the story of the prodigal son. And interestingly, the story of the prodigal son ends with the father throwing this huge banquet. Because his lost son has come home, this son that he thought was dead, this son that was gone forever and he hadn't heard from him because he took all his money and he spent it on the stuff people like to spend money on when they win the lotto and end up broke two years later. And he ends up broke two years later and he finally comes home and his dad decides to just totally forgive completely and now they're going to have this big party that they haven't had for a long time most likely and the older brother doesn't want to come in. But in the life of Jesus, we're in between these two banquet stories where the king on the one hand is so eager to get as many people into the banquet as possible. And on the other hand, the father is so eager to get his sons together in the banquet. So it's hard for me to look at these like hate passages and say, Jesus is a jerk because it sounds like from Jesus' perspective, he sees that his father is trying to bring as many people into the greatest state of happiness humanly possible, and the problem isn't God. Make sense? If I lost you, that's Luke 13 and Luke 15. And, and read about Jesus for yourself. And ask good questions about Jesus for yourself. And ask, what is Jesus thinking in this story for yourself? So I don't think Jesus is a jerk because it seems like in his heart he's trying to solve the problem of people not coming. But that does bring me to my next point, which is the slavery is a choice question. Is slavery a choice? Slavery is a choice? Which I think is a Kanye West quote, uh, and he's having hard times in his family, but he got himself in a lot of trouble by tweeting that out one time recently. And what it looks like is happening is Jesus has this picture of the best life. Your best life, my best life. Today, tomorrow, the next day, forever, just whatever person with a smiling face, book, whatever, it doesn't time frame, schmime frame, just the best life possible. And he's trying to get people into it. And he's wanting to talk about what's keeping people from it. And so he turns to the crowd and he starts naming the hidden slaveries. How many of us know it's always easier to see somebody else's bondage? 
right? If you, know, if you know somebody who's on a substance and it's ruining their life, you can see it pretty good, eh? They don't see it necessarily, but you can see it. You know somebody in a relationship that's killing them? They're not leaving it. You can see it. They don't see it. True? Anybody ever seen that? And there's something about this crowd, and maybe it's not every crowd, and maybe it's not you, but there's something about this crowd where Jesus has to, in order to love them, and has to, in order to get them sensitized to the real God's real will for their real life, he has to turn to them, and he has to nuke their family commitments, even to their own life. Mother and father. Jesus does believe in that one of the Ten Commandments, to honor your father and your mother. And he even tells the Pharisees, they figured out this way of like uber tithing where they were going to commit money to God and give it to the temple. And because that, they were going to turn around to their parents and say, sorry, I don't have any money to support you in your old age. And he actually told them that they were denying their faith by doing that. And they were like worse than unbelievers, Paul would say. So it's not like he actually wants unfaithfulness to parents. But what's going on there? Is this maybe a picture of people pleasing? Who are the two people whose opinion of you is going to most influence and maybe control you for all of your life, whether they're happy with you or mad at you or sad with you or disappointed with you? Does this stand for human tradition? Does this stand for how we've always done it? Does this stand for the larger culture? Does this stand for what the government thinks? Does this stand for anything authority over top of you or what your boss is asking or anything like this? Does this just stand in for all this stuff where we would feel so much more comfortable if everyone above us was just happy with us no matter what it cost us in our walk with Jesus? What about your wife? Is this a commandment only for the guys? Are the gals off the hook? Didn't say husbands, we're good. Dodged a bullet on that one. Unlikely. Does this stand for sexual desire? Does this stand for romantic desire? Does this stand for wanting to have a relationship with somebody else that will make you feel whole and make you feel complete and make you feel wanted and make you feel unrejected? Does this stand for the pleasure that another human being can give us, whether it's physically or socially or something else? And Jesus just looking at this crowd and knowing in their heart of hearts, many people would be unfaithful to God in order for the pleasure of people and find a way to pull it off with a verse attached. When you're talking about children, does this just mean these little people? And of course, Jesus cares about the children. Jesus told us that if you cause a child's faith to be wrecked, if you cause them to stumble, it's better that you just die right now than do that. It's better for you to be murdered. It's better for you to get in a car crash. It's better for you to drown than to wreck the faith of a child. 
And yet, what does this stand for? Does this stand for our accomplishments or what we want to leave with the world? Or does this stand for even people we might want to protect from God and from being hurt by the word of God or something like this? Does this stand for this urge to protect things that we might want to preserve our kingdom against the king of kings kingdom coming down and messing up what we've tried to build up and protect for ourselves? We'll leave brothers and sisters alone because we all get all we do is fight with them anyway. So, brothers and sisters are so funny. They're these people that you can't get away from, but you don't owe them anything. Am I right? Yeah, like you're stuck being family, and they owe you, but you don't owe them. So we all hate them already, and it's okay. At least you get like a thumbs up on something. I'm kind of messing around with you, but. But on the one hand, maybe there is some truth that out of all the family members we have, brothers and sisters are the ones we feel least inclined to faithfulness to, just naturally. It's so weird. Just pause Rob's observations. Aren't brothers and sisters the people you're most like quickly offended by? Isn't that weird? Like it's just like they can't talk to you about anything. Try try to lead your brother or sister to the Lord. So weird. We all know each other's junks. But then Jesus lets us know what he's really after here. There's something about our own lives that get in the way of our life that Jesus is coming after. And it's, it's interesting, okay? I just want to say something here that, that I'm messing with all your hair. You're all going to need to comb it out afterwards, but... I stand up here and I take Jesus' like uber offensive words. And then I try to put a little salt and butter on there. You know what I mean? Like these are bitter words. It's not that bad. You know, give me some ketchup. You can handle it. You know what I mean? Like it's like, but Jesus didn't do that. He's just like, y'all going to hate everybody to follow me or what? Mike, you just, you just, off he goes. <laughs> you got to hate everybody, including yourself. Tower, war, you get it or you don't. Bye. Wouldn't you be mad? Wouldn't you be like, got to be another church somewhere that's a little bit more like, it's got the coffee and sermons I can handle, you know. Well, Jesus tries to help us make sense of this all with some stories to make us think about. It's almost like Jesus said stuff and expected us to go away and think about it and not make an immediate judgment right off the Right, right immediately about whether or not this is good. It's almost like he was like planting some truth bombs in people's minds that he wanted to go off at a later date. But first he tells this story about tower building, and then he tells a story about the, the battles. And these are both war images. And, and at least the events in Ukraine recently have reminded us that war is not necessarily something far away in years gone by. 
Because a year ago, nobody would have said, like, Ukraine's going to be just rubble. We were all like, you got to get fired for not being vaccinated. We had our own issues a year ago, but nobody was thinking uh, Europe is going to have on its border something threatening to become nuclear war. And for Jesus' uh, audience at this time, war was not unfamiliar to them. Many of them would have had family members who had been killed by uh, the Greeks or the Romans within living memory in some kind of war or something like that. But he tells these two war stories. The first is the building of a tower. And it's really good to remember that they didn't build towers back then for looks. Right? You had watchtowers and you had hiding towers. You might remember from the book of Judges, there was this tower, they were being invaded this one time, and all the people were like, ah, we're all going to die! And then they run into the tower to hide in the hopes that somebody else will come and rescue them. And remember that one lady had her millstone, which is like bringing your microwave oven when you're fleeing from war, because this is how you get some food going on, and she had her millstone, and she dropped it out the window onto that guy's head and killed him. You guys remember that one? That's a tower. Somewhere you run away from in a battle when you know the other army is too strong for you. And then there's the second one about the two armies, and you're just like, a guy's got to know. If I've only got 10,000 people, do I think I can win against 20,000 people? And you can even think about this with the Ukraine stuff, because somebody in Ukraine decided, I think we can hold out long enough to make this really count against the Russians that they're going to want to eventually leave, instead of just going like, there's, this is hopeless and we should just surrender. And these two war parables, which, just being honest, I often struggle to understand how Jesus gets from these two war parables about suing for peace, like don't start building something you can't finish and don't start a fight you can't win, and then says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. There's a jump going on there that I don't... So this is why you got to... What is Jesus thinking? And so I can share with you where I'm at. And it's this. Jesus is saying, God is invading the world to save people. And it's a real invasion. With fighting and destruction and losers. And there's a way to lose with God where you win forever. And there's a way to lose against God where you lose forever. Do you think you're strong enough to fight off God? Do you think you're strong enough that if you white-knuckle your life and fight for what you need and fight for your rights and the mom and the dad and the wife and the kids and just hold on to what you think you need and think you want no matter what, do you think that God is not able to have his own opinion about that? And I think what Jesus is saying here is, Go for broke. Be broke. Just surrender. Surrender now. Why hold out another day? Just surrender now. Do you think you and all your resources can hold out against the armies of heaven? Do you think you and your family can shut the door and keep God out if he wants in? 
And the crazy thing is because even while I'm talking about this, it's kind of like, ah, God's the bad guy. But Jesus is trying to get at that part of our life that assumes that God might be the bad guy and not me. I'm sorry, but with a clear view of my own life, I'm the bad guy. I'm the jerk. I'm the selfish one. I'm the petty one. I'm the lying one. I'm the hiding one. So, Jesus, when? Beat beat me (laughs) in the right way. Oh, man, that's going to be a clip. I don't want to build a tower against you anymore, God, made out of people or money or drugs or fame or funny or high or low or anything. I don't want a tower against God. I don't want an army against God. Win, win, win. Have me. Have all of me forever, oh God. Now, we're going to change gears again to talk about poop. And this is where I'm going to reveal my inner middle schooler. There's some things you never grow out of. Hair color, eye color, and enjoyment of talking about manure on a stage. And my question here is, are you clear about what you mean? And I don't mean like mean when you're speaking, being able to clearly communicate, I mean, your life means something. Doesn't it? Isn't your life incredibly important to you? Isn't it valuable? Even if you're depressed, sometimes aren't we depressed because we wish things were better? And our life is so important to us and it just wears you down that things aren't going better in this life that is incredibly valuable to us. Is it just me? Okay. And Jesus ends these stories talking about salt. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either to the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. And this is just, again, trying to see Jesus as he is. He starts off by saying, your life is so important, you need to hate everything that's going to cost you your life. And then he goes and says, you're, you're this salt You're this good and useful thing. You flavor things to make them better. You preserve things that would rot without you. You even make manure better, which I think means that, you know, using it for farming, a little bit of salt in there helps with the chemicals and blah, 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 and that's as far as the website page I read this morning helped me understand anything. And there's a reason I talk for a living and don't try to survive with my hands. But the assumption in this parable is it's your life to lose and it's your worth to squander. You are made incredibly important by your creator. Every minute of your life is incredibly important to God. 
Every breath you take, which is a gift, is almost immeasurably important compared to everything else. You're salt. You're this valuable, changing, useful thing. And Jesus is pleading with the crowds, don't lose who you're meant to be. Don't let it go without a fight. Don't get talked out of your mission and your life and your calling and your importance. By anything, including things as important as your flesh and blood. Because even though it's not like the will of God, and I know, I, I, I understand all the bases, there's the will of God and then there's the will of God, there's what's going to happen and there's what God wants to happen. His will isn't for us to get thrown away and to be so unuseful that even manure is too good for us. That's not Jesus' plan, his hope, his uh, pleading, his fighting. And he loves this crowd enough to outrageously offend them and totally disappoint them. I mean, the crowd's not there because they want to get kicked in the shins. The crowd's there for the fun and the miracles and the healings and maybe he's going to make a ton of food again for nothing. The crowd's there to see the glory of Jesus and he just can't believe in the thought of letting them miss his father in the midst of it. And so he, he lances the boil of their pride and their self-sufficiency with the hope that they will survive it and come to God's party. So how are your ears doing today? I love it when Jesus says, Hey, if you've got ears, how are, are you using them? He's so interesting. Like, if somebody said that to you for real and you hadn't heard, read about it in the Bible, wouldn't you think, what a weirdo? Hey, if you've got ears, I hope they're turned on. You're so strange. Do you know what I mean? Wouldn't you think that? I would. <laughs> I not think I would leave, but I'd be like, I'm strange too. Is it, you're really strange. <laughs> But there's something about Jesus, and this is one of the things that touches on Canadian culture where we feel so responsible to control people's feelings so that they will like us. True fact. We want to try to like manage everything so that no one gets upset so that they'll come to church. Right? And there's something about Jesus where he says true things with the most loving heart that no human being besides him has ever had. And then he just says, it's just between you and God now. If you got ears, I hope you're hearing what God says because no one else can rescue you from the truth. No one can rescue you from the facts. And he just, he treats them with this sense of respect and responsibility we hardly get anywhere. Right? It's, we, we live in this weird culture where you kind of go from like 
controlled to controlled to controlled to controlled, and it's all about safety. And Jesus is, I mean, he's not unsafe. And even if you got hurt, he could heal you from whatever, whenever, however, from a distance with some spit, you know, whatever. He got, he's got you covered. But he really expects everyone to take God seriously. And he doesn't baby the crowds about it. And if people got offended, he wouldn't like it. But that's their hearts. It's my heart. It's your heart. It's your ears. How are they doing? How are your ears doing? Are you hearing God? Just praying here for a sec. I have this routine I do in my messages right now, and I, I'm not sure it's the right routine to do. If I were Jesus, I would just turn this mic off <laughs> and bless you with discomfort, with the hope that some of you would take your discomfort and say, I need God. And, and us pastors, man, we, we keep the diapers on you guys sometimes. It's not good. Any single one of you, if, if you got a Bible, and there's no excuses because you can leave here this morning with a Bible if you don't have one. You've got more than you need to hear God and to change and to live a life following Jesus if you, if you want to. And I don't demand perfection and God doesn't demand perfection. You put your hope in Jesus, he forgives you of everything and then you're on the journey. But man, I'm just stunned by Jesus' expectation for maturity out of these people. And the only way for people to mature is, is to not be babies anymore. That's the only way forward. Yes, your life sucks and it's hard. Like Pierre said, got to go 70 years without crying. And you can do it. Because all you need is Jesus. And this is the thing that I think I'm seeing about Jesus. And this is, I will wrap it up and the band can come up. One of the struggles it appears to me Jesus had in his life was that he just could hardly understand how people could be so close to his father and still so bound up by other things. It's like, you know my dad and you still need sex? You know my dad and you still worry about money? 
you know my dad and you're still going to like sell your life to stay in the Sanhedrin? Like you know my dad and you're still living like this? Am I, am I nuts here? It just seems like he just was so often just flabbergasted. Like, It's always the one with Peter on the water. I'm sorry, I'm rambling here. ADD, I don't know. Peter is walking on water out to Jesus and then he stumbles a little bit, starts to sink, and Jesus is like, what happened to your faith, man? It's like, I'm right here and you're worried? This is where I, I just, my sin is pressing up against Jesus. The Holy Spirit lives in me and I get worried? What? doesn't make any sense. It's just, it's just my immaturity and my sin and my blindness and my wanting to find security in things besides the risen Jesus that's the problem. That's it. Amen? So we're going to worship, and I'm, just, I'm saying, I feel like I keep giving the same message over and over again. Can you guys all change so that God can move me forward into something else? It's all your fault. You are a piece of garbage, Rob. You're blame-shifting right there. If you can say the name Jesus with faith, you have all you need to move forward in maturity. Amen? Amen? If you can call on the name Jesus with faith, you have enough to experience the salvation of God. You are grown men and women of the church. We can face this. We can rise again. We can get struck down seven times and stand again because we are the righteous. I do believe in you. I believe that you can grow and change, and sometimes you just need to let go of how you want to change in order to get the change that God wants for you. Yeah. Amen? Amen? But I believe if you put your faith in Jesus, you can fulfill all of God's plans for your life. And you don't need me to be your daddy or your savior or your cult leader or anything like that. I don't want to be anybody's cult leader. I'll drink the Kool-Aid first. I'm out of here if this place is going cult-like. Just keep me where God wants me to be. I'm just some dude that brings you the word every once in a while, and it's my job to help fix the problems that happen here. But you know Jesus. So plant a church. Heal the sick. Pray in all that money you need. You have Jesus. If you lost your mom and dad, if you've lost your wife, if you've lost your kids, you have Jesus. And you don't know what the resurrection power of Jesus can do with the future.